I invite you to turn with me to uh, the text for this Lord's Day, as it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. First Corinthians seven fourteen. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. It's disputed and discussed uh, among churches uh, today. What place uh, do our children have within the church? How are we to view our children? Uh, Are we to view our children as we view the children of those outside the church? Those who are heathens and pagans? Is that how we are to view our our children? Uh, or are we to chill, uh, view our children as those who are within the church, the visible church of Jesus Christ? Are we to view our children as unclean before God? Or are we to view our children as holy, in some sense, holy before God? I believe that, again, it's a very, very important question in the whole matter of God's covenant, in the whole matter of how we parent our children. Very, very important considerations here that enter into how I preach uh, on the Lord's Day to our children. Do I preach to them as those who are outside the church? Do I preach to, the, to them as those who are within the church? I certainly believe that the Apostle Paul uh, makes very clear in his instructions in Ephesians and in Colossians uh, that he addresses husbands, wives, parents, and also children. He doesn't exclude children from uh, being those who have a right to hear uh, the preaching, the teaching of God's word, the instruction of God's word. Very clearly in 1 Corinthians uh, 7.14, uh, Paul says that our children are not unclean, but rather our children are holy. And so there's really no question as to how we're to view our children. The only question is, what do those words mean? What are we to understand by our children not being unclean, but rather our children being holy? So that's really uh, what we want to focus on because it's, 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 again, very, very clear what Paul says, the words that he uses, but what does he mean by those particular words? So we're going to consider uh, in our text today uh, three points. And uh, the first point is this, that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. Second point Our children are not unclean. And then thirdly, our children are holy. Now this uh, passage 
does not directly speak to baptism. Um, you're not going to find water uh, in this passage directly, explicitly stated. But I do believe that as we consider the passage, it, it does give to the, us the precondition uh, to baptism, that uh, our children are holy and therefore they have a right uh, to baptism. So let us consider the first main point. The unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. Let me just very quickly summarize the verses leading up to verse 14. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as in other chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul's treatment of various subjects comes from questions that were being asked uh, by the congregation there uh, in Corinth. The, the Christians in Corinth had raised various questions, and, and Paul is very um, systematically uh, answering those questions as we work through each of the chapters um, of 1 Corinthians, or most of the chapters in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 7, verse 1, notice what it says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. So again, we're to understand that his treatment here of the subjects that are covered in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 do arise from the congregation there in Corinth. In verses 1 through 9, chapter 7, Paul addresses the matter of singleness. In verses 10 through 11, Paul addresses the matter of the marriage of two believing spouses in a marriage. And then in verses 12 through 16, Paul addresses the marriage of an unbeliever and of a believer who, who are united in marriage. It's within that third category that our text appears with regard to um, else your children were unclean, but now they are holy. So it's in, within that third category where he's treating the matter of a, a believing and an unbelieving spouse being uh, within the same uh, marriage. It would appear, again, as we understand this uh, passage, that it had arisen within the congregation that some <clears throat> were concerned that the unbeliever in a marriage where there was also a believer, that the unbeliever in some way defiled the marriage. And uh, that, therefore if the marriage was defiled, that the believer uh, had perhaps the right, and this is the question that, that has arisen, the believer had the right in such a defiled marriage uh, to either separate from the unbeliever in that marriage or even to perhaps divorce uh, the unbeliever in that marriage simply by virtue of that person being an unbeliever. 
not having you know, the biblical grounds that Jesus states or that Paul later states here uh, about the unbeliever uh, deserting uh, the believer, but simply by virtue of there being an unbeliever in the marriage, that that so defiled the marriage that uh, the question arises, uh, does the believer have a right in that circumstance uh, to uh, separate from or to divorce uh, the unbeliever? How Paul doesn't spend any time basically describing how it came about that there was a believer and an unbeliever in the same marriage. Uh, that's not his focus. And... Uh, Therefore, it, it, it's not something I'm going to focus on either. Uh, but rather, he's simply focusing on, on not the question how it came to be that there's a believer and an unbeliever, but the fact that there is a believer and an unbeliever. Uh, clearly, in, later on in the same chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, um, Paul does say that, that we as Christians are only to marry in the Lord. Uh, so that, that certainly is a, a principle very clearly uh, laid out uh, in God's word. Here Paul uh, infers that such marriages between uh, or that involve a, a believer and an unbeliever uh, they are, he infers, they are valid marriages. They are valid marriages uh, and they are not to be ended. Uh, they are not to be brought uh, to an end by way of either separation or divorce. As long as the unbeliever uh, gives his or her consent to continue in that marital relationship. Once However, that unbeliever says, I'm out of here. Uh, I no longer want to be married to you. Uh, that becomes, as Paul says, there's no further obligation or duty in that kind of a situation. And uh, likewise, our confession of faith uh, speaks to that as well. Uh, that desertion that has no remedy within church or state to be able to correct that, that problem uh, is a biblical ground for divorce. But again, uh, that's not for the believer to institute uh, or initiate. Uh, that's the unbeliever initiates that and the believer then responds if that should happen. But simply by virtue of it being an unbeliever is clearly not a ground for uh, separation or divorce, according to the Apostle Paul. And so we find in first, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 7, 14, uh, this begins with the word for. Uh, and so here's the reason uh, stated for why the marriage is to continue uh, when there is a believer and an unbeliever present. Here's the, the, the stated reason Paul gives. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by 
the husband. That's the reason given. I might, uh, I might offer that I think a better translation might be that, that the unbeliever is sanctified in, rather than by, in the believer, that is, in marital union with the believer. The word uh, sanctified that is used here uh, can either be used in Scripture uh, in an inward sense of sanctification or in an outward sense of sanctification. In an inward sense, uh, it refers to God's work of grace within the, the, the heart, within the mind of, of one uh, bringing forth uh, and implanting in that person and bringing forth the grace of, of holiness. Uh, in the previous chapter, I think we find an example of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, where it says, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So this is an internal, inward work of sanctification um, uh, by way of regeneration, uh, by way of becoming a new creation in Jesus Christ. But there's also uh, a sense in which to be sanctified uh, is used in an outward sense of sanctification. And that in that sense, it refers to uh, someone or something that is set apart from a common use uh, to a use appointed for God's purpose. And, uh, for example, again, we'll be referring back to the Old Testament because I think these terms that we find here in verse 14 really have uh, their understanding and meaning from the Old Testament. But in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 30, for example, with regard to this matter of being sanctified, notice it says, And Moses took of the anointing oil and the blood which was upon the altar and sprinkled it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon his sons' garments with him and sanctified Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So, interestingly, uh, it's not only people that are sanctified, but even things that are sanctified, that are set apart from a common use to a, a use for God's own purposes. And so, um, uh, that outward sanctification uh, did not necessarily mean that the thing itself was intrinsically holy or that the, even the person uh, that was set apart was internally or intrinsically holy uh, as well. Um, we, we have the example in Leviticus chapter 10 of two of the sons of, of Aaron being smitten and stricken by God for offering strange fire. Again, I don't know, you know with any certainty what the condition of their heart was, but that's not, a, that's not the kind of judgment uh, you know, that, 
that would uh, perhaps fall uh, upon um, some, someone that it would seem was internally sanctified, but perhaps pointing out there's an outward sanctification, but, but not necessarily an internal sanctification in that particular case. So back to 1 Corinthians 7.14, since the unbeliever in this marriage to a believer is said to be sanctified in the believer, in union, marital union with the believer, I don't think that it means that since it's an unbeliever that it the unbeliever was therefore internally sanctified, but was externally, outwardly sanctified in some way. Moreover, I think it's important to likewise understand the tense of the verb that is used here, is sanctified, uh, is used in the perfect tense, and uh, the perfect tense conveys the idea of, uh, of an accomplished uh, event fact. Something has been accomplished and continues by way of effect into the future. And in this case, as long as the unbeliever continues, consent, consents to be married, this sanctification continues. When did it begin? Well, it began when they were married, or uh, it began uh, again at whatever point, if they were both unbelievers and one became a believer, it, it, that sanctification began uh, at that point. Uh, whenever there was that contrast between a believer, if it was from the very beginning of marriage in which an unbeliever, uh, say, uh, in a time of weakness, uh, backsliding, married an unbeliever, it still would have begun then, or if it had to do with a believer, uh, uh, one being converted after marriage, then that sanctification began at that point. It's an accomplished fact. And continues, that sanctification continues throughout the time of that marital union, uh, the Apostle Paul says. So this being the case, uh, the unbeliever, Paul argues, does not defile uh, the marriage to the believer, but rather the believer sanctifies the marriage to the unbeliever. I I like um, what Calvin says um, on this particular point. He says, and I quote, It might seem as if a believing wife contracted infection from an unbelieving husband so as to make the connection unlawful, but it is otherwise, for the piety of the one, that is, the believer, has more effect in sanctifying marriage than the impiety of the other in polluting it. Hence, a believer may, with a pure conscience, live with an unbeliever. For in respect of the use and intercourse of the marriage bed and of life generally, he is sanctified. That is, the unbeliever. He is sanctified. 
so as not to infect the believing party with his impurity. I think that what Paul is saying, even with one believer in a marriage, that we can call that a Christian marriage. That seems to be what he's saying. It's not a, you know, between a Christian and a non-Christian marriage, when there is a believer present, between those two options, we don't say it's a, it's a non-Christian marriage or an unchristian marriage. It's a Christian marriage because of the presence of the believer uh, in that marriage. I think it's important to note here that this marital uh, sanctification that Paul speaks of did not bestow any ecclesiastical status or privileges upon the unbeliever in the marriage. In other words, the unbeliever was not uh, able because he or she was sanctified by way of being joined and united to a believer. The unbeliever was, the professing unbeliever, was not entitled to baptism. The, the unbe professing unbeliever was not entitled to the privileges of the church. This is a, not an ecclesiastical sanctification. This is a marital uh, sanctification that's in view. So I think we need to, again, distinguish and make clear there's not, nowhere in Scripture that I'm aware of where a professed unbeliever has a right and title to membership within the Church of Jesus Christ or to the, to the ordinances or sacraments of, of Christ's church. Can an unbeliever come and sit and listen to the preaching, instruction of God's word? Yes. Can they sit and observe what's going on? Yes, they can. But they're not themselves entitled to those same privileges. Uh, I don't think we find that where there is a professed unbeliever uh, in whether the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Uh, Paul says, uh, one last thought on this first point. Paul says in verse 16, For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband, or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? And so uh, the, the whole matter here that Paul is presenting is that in continuing the marriage, between a, a believer and the unbeliever, and the unbeliever being sanctified in marital union with the believer, that in God's uh, gracious providence, it may be the means by which um, the Lord brings the unbeliever to Christ uh, through, the, through the believer. The believer may be the agent that God uses uh, to accomplish this, and so uh, that's, that's, again, uh, uh, very much in keeping with keeping that marriage intact. Not, not, uh, uh, not saying that this marriage is invalid, this marriage uh, uh, is unlawful, um, and uh, rather continuing that marriage. It seems in the world today, the world comes up with every possible way to try to destroy marriages, right? Any reason at all uh, is sufficient to destroy a marriage. And Paul is limiting, so limiting himself. 
He's trying to preserve marriages wherever he possibly can, and that should be our attitude as well. We should not be lo looking for loopholes. Legitimate grounds that God gives, yes, but not looking for and trying to manipulate and uh, to use certain words or something like that to try to form a basis, but trying to have solid ground, a solid basis uh, for if there is to be the dissolution of a marriage, the very solid ba grounds for doing so. And one way that that is, um, uh, is able to be, I think, secured that, that one is doing so upon solid ground and basis is not to do so independently. Not to do so just to say, well, I think I have grounds uh, for uh, you know, separation or divorce, but to appeal to the eldership, uh, to recognize uh, this is a very important matter to the church and the families of the church. And so uh, to go through uh, the eldership uh, is very, very important in this whole matter. Second main point, our children are not unclean. So this portion of 1 Corinthians 7.14, again, let me read the first part of the verse. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. So we've, we've considered that. I hope you have... A, a grasp on what is being said there. Now we proceed with uh, the rest of the verse and the argument that Paul is presenting. Uh, so after having stated that, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. In other, in other words, what Paul is saying, uh, if the unbeliever is not sanctified by the believer... Uh, then your children are unclean. That's the, that's the progression of argument that he's making and at this particular point. And he presents this phrase in verse 14, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. He presents that part of the verse as basically uh, an axiom. He presents that as something recognized, accepted amongst everybody. And that's why he presents it that way. You know, what was maybe so uncertain was what do we do with these marital relationships? You know, where there's a believer and unbeliever. Um, but how does he argue uh, by way of a certainty? a truth that they all recognize, else are your children unclean, but now they are holy. That's what was accepted. So that, in effect, in the argument, becomes the premise, if this is true, then that is certainly true. Uh, so that, that's the way that he is arguing here, that this is an accepted, this is not an undoubted or unclear truth um, that he is presenting at the end of the verse. Where would he have learned that? <clears throat> uh, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy? 
where would that was that just something uh, kind of contemporary and modern uh, that that Paul uh, initiated um, in just at that moment or came without any further revelation from the Old Testament but was given just at that moment by way of revelation I think that we see as as hopefully we'll be able to show in a moment um, how dependent uh, we are for the correct interpretation of this verse upon the Old Testament scriptures. The unity of God's covenant uh, from the old to the new, I think is presented to us here very clearly. And I hope we'll see that as we move through uh, this verse. So Paul declares that such a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever is a valid marriage for the unbeliever is outwardly outwardly uh, sanctified in marital union with the believer otherwise otherwise else otherwise if that were not true your children would be unclean but we all know that they are holy that's the way he's arguing thus it's proven that uh, by way of that argument that the unbelieving spouse is indeed sanctified in marital union with the believing spouse because the children from such a mixed marriage are not unclean but are holy. So let's ask the question here, uh, how would the children be unclean? What does that mean? Um, else they are whole, or, or, or else they were uh, unclean. What does that mean? Well, I, as I said, I think we need to go back to the Old Testament scriptures in order to understand exactly what uh, that means. Some have interpreted that um, to mean uh, else were your children uh, illegitimate. Um, and I find uh, that a, a very strange uh, argument uh, that uh, the uh, that if the Bible does teach very clearly that uh, in Hebrews thirteen four that marriage is honorable and all uh, that marriage is honorable among believers and unbelievers uh, that uh, children born say of two Unbelievers, those children are not illegitimate. Uh, those are not the children of two parents who are unwed. Uh, that is a valid marriage, even amongst unbelievers. And so, again, I, I, I don't think that that's um, a likely interpretation of the word unclean. I don't think that it's used in that sense anywhere else in the Bible um, uh, to mean illegitimate uh, as it pertains to uh, to children uh, coming from, as it were, unwed parents. Uh, that's basically how that interpretation would would make it that, that children from two unbelieving parents uh, are the same as children from two unwed parents. Uh, and, and again, I don't think that that's what Paul is saying at all. 
I, I, I think that there's a, a much better interpretation, a much more sound interpretation as we consider how the word unclean is used uh, in the Old Testament scriptures. And again, uh, the new covenant uh, uh, principles and the new covenant teaching being based upon what God revealed in the old covenant. And there's not this radical dismemberment between the old and the new, but rather a continuity. Certainly a discontinuity by way of the outward administration, but not as to the, uh, the meaning uh, of, of, of words and uh, the continuity of principles, uh, moral uh, principles. So, in understanding the word uh, unclean, I believe that the Old Testament uh, would, in, in this way, understand unclean to mean that uh, that which is unacceptable, that which is not approved to be within the temple or to be among God's people would be considered unclean. And it may not be a moral, necessarily a moral defilement. It could be simply a, an outward ceremonial uh, def defilement. For example, in 2 Chronicles 23.19, it says there, and he set the porters at the gates of the house of the Lord, that none which was unclean in anything should enter in. So the porters were given the responsibility and duty to keep those who were uh, unclean ceremonially, no doubt morally, uh, but uh, those who were unclean. But it would not merely be that those who were morally unclean, but those as well who were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean to keep them out from coming into the into uh, the temple and uh, that's where those who were holy were to be but those who are unclean were not to come in uh, to the temple or to the tabernacle likewise in Leviticus 721 just another example use of the word unclean Moreover, the soul that shall touch any unclean thing as the uncleanness of man or any unclean beast or any abominable unclean thing and eat of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings which pertain unto the Lord, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. And so again, the very strong command of the Lord here that those who touch, who eat, um, whether, uh, again, uh, external type of uncleanness or internal uncleanness, uh, those who are unclean ought not to, should not uh, partake of the sacrifice of peace offerings uh, lest they be cut off as one who is unclean, be cut off from his people and uh, basically put outside um, uh, the, uh, 
the people of God uh, and uh, be treated as a foreigner, be treated as a stranger, not as one who is a part of the God's covenant people be put out in that way. That would be the idea of an uh, unclean person is one who's, who's put outside of God's covenant people. And that, uh, that again, I think is, uh, is in keeping with uh, what we find uh, in the Old Testament scriptures and as we come to the New Testament scriptures uh, and use the same um, principles and apply them uh, to the New Testament temple, uh, which is the church of Jesus Christ, those who are unclean are foreigners or strangers outside of the, uh, the visible church of Jesus Christ. Um, they don't have access to, to the sacraments uh, within the, ta- uh, the temple. They don't have access to those, those holy things uh, why, uh, that God has appointed because they are outside, they are unclean. And until they are no longer unclean, uh, that's where they remain, uh, is outside. And so uh, the New Testament temple of the Lord Jesus Christ is his church, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, calls his church a holy temple. Uh, we are, as living stones, uh, we are built up as a house of God as a house of worship unto our great and mighty God. Thus, dear ones, last thought on this second point before we move on to the third point. Any position that would cut off children who come from a Christian marriage, which means one believing parent in that marriage, and would cut them off from Christ's church, that was unheard of to Paul and to the Corinthians. They, 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 they could not have uh, understood that idea cut off from Christ's church. Um, a child, uh, to treat that child that comes from a believing parent as unclean, as outside the visible church, as having no rights, Within the visible church, uh, that that's again the way in which this verse is presented, and the way Paul is arguing. And uh, uh, because again, uh, as we'll see in the next point, children were brought into God's covenant. That's why they were holy. That's why they were accounted holy, because they were included within God's covenant of grace. The promises were made not only to those parents who could believe, but also to their children as well, Peter says in Acts 2.39. Our last point then is uh, this, our children are holy. So just as we went to the Old Testament to understand what the word unclean meant. So we go to the Old Testament to understand what the word holy means. And as we look at the Old Testament, 
I think we will find there uh, that the word holy means that which, ex at least externally holy, is that which is approved and acceptable within the temple. If unclean is that which is not acceptable, holy means that which is acceptable within the temple. That which is acceptable and approved among God's covenant people. And so we would find, for example, in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 7, 6, that uh, pe the people of Israel were called God's holy people. Deuteronomy 7, 6, hol a holy people. Does that mean everyone within uh, Israel was regenerate? No, uh, but that means that they were accounted. They were, they were viewed as being set apart from uh, the people of the world by way of this gracious covenant that God had instituted with them uh, by way of pointing to Jesus Christ who was to come as their Savior, as their only Savior, by way of the gracious co uh, commandments that he gave so that they could walk in obedience, loving obedience unto him. We also see in Exodus 19.6 that they're called a holy nation. And again, doesn't mean that everyone within the nation was inwardly holy, but that they were as a nation, as a people set apart unto God from the, all the nations of the world. Amos says uh, concerning Israel that God had chosen them and them alone out of all the nations of the world. But when we come to the New Testament, we, see, we find the same language used with regard to the church. For example, in 1 Peter 2.9, But ye, Peter says uh, to the church, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There, the same language is used with regard to the church. Just as the church is a holy temple, so likewise the church is a holy nation. They've been, the church has been set apart from, again, uh, the strangers, uh, the foreigners. It's, it's a peculiar people to God that God has called out unto himself uh, by way uh, of an outward call um, to come uh, into this visible church of Jesus Christ. So just as the children of professing believers uh, were included outwardly, in God's holy nation in the Old Testament, uh, in God's holy people in the Old Testament. So likewise, as we have a holy nation, the church uh, presented to us in 1 Peter 2.9, and as they are called holy, children of at least one believing parent are called holy, they're a part of that same holy nation just as the children of the Old Testament were 
a part of and members of that holy nation in the Old Testament. So are children members of and part of the holy nation in the New Testament, the visible church of Jesus Christ? <clears throat> we might say, um, for example, in First Corinthians and in many of the epistles, it begins, uh, you'll be familiar with this, it, it begins with, uh, the introduction to the saints, to the saints, the holy ones, uh, in that location, and in this location, in that location, to the holy ones. Here, uh, again, the children of at least one believing parent are said to be holy. They're little saints. They're little saints. They're a part of a holy nation. They're not dismembered. Uh, they're not disenfranchised uh, from uh, being a part of that holy nation. This is the accepted truth by Paul and the Corinthians. This is the premise upon which he bases. As I said, really this is only introduced inc incidentally. Uh, th this is really not a part of what he's talking about, the matter of children. It's only introduced to make strong the argument that the unbeliever is sanctified in marital union with the believer. And he only introduces this because everybody accepted it. Everyone believed it, that, that the children of believers are not unclean. They're not outside the temple. They're not outside the visible church. They are members of it. They're holy. They're little saints among God's people meant that, that they could uh, not only enter, I mean, I, I said this earlier, but perhaps some would say, okay, I, I accept the fact that um, they're holy in the sense that they can come to worship, uh, that they can hear the preaching, <clears throat> that they can be taught, they can witness uh, uh, baptism. Uh, I, I can accept in that sense they're holy. But I would say, how is that then any different than uh, a child who comes from two unbelieving parents attending and listening to the word of God preached or being taught by God's word? The unbelieving, the child from unbelieving parents can do exactly the same thing and sit under the preaching of God's word. An agnostic, an atheist, a pagan can do that. So how is that any special status to be called holy if you can only do exactly the same thing that any pagan could do? Sit under the teaching of God's word. This has to be something different. This has to be something distinctive from that, which is again to say that the children of at least one believing parent are holy in the sense that they are not outside the visible church, but they are members of the visible church, and they have a right uh, to the privileges of the visible church. And what makes the difference, as I said, between the, the unclean children who are foreigners and strangers and those who are holy uh, is the covenant of grace 
that God by his sovereign will and design has included our posterity in those covenant blessings. To be again in covenant with God by way of an external relationship is different than by way of an internal relationship granted. But to have that external relationship with, in covenant with God is a great blessing. And it is the means that God uses to bring them into an internal relationship with the living God and to be in covenant with God internally. That's the means that he has set up. That they are not viewed as second-class citizens. Your children, are, whether you're younger or older, you're not second-class citizens. You are a blessing to us. You are our future. And we take great delight and we pray for you. And we pray that God grants you believing, holy, covenanted spouses, that God blesses those unions to his glory with little saints, with holy ones. But that's what the covenant of grace is all about. I want to make perfectly clear that in saying what I've already said, I'm not denying that our children by nature are conceived in sin. But that's why they need the covenant of grace. Because they, like us, need a savior. They need one to rescue them from their sin. They're not innocent even from conception as it relates to their accountability before God. And sin to my mother conceive me, David says in Psalm 51, 5. The fact that children die, die in the womb, die outside the womb. The wages of sin is what? Death. They are sinners, but they are set apart. Just like we are sinners. And we've been set apart by God's grace. Inward holiness, as we've noted, is, is the work of God's special grace. Accomplished by the Spirit of God in creating faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life loving obedience to the commands of God. That is a special work of God's grace, and we pray for our children that that special work of grace will be worked within each of their hearts. But even, even if that is delayed, or even if that does not happen, as they are raised within our home, they are viewed by the church and by God as being holy ones set apart for his peculiar use. So Paul here doesn't introduce baptism, right? 
so uh, the question I'm sure arises in some people's minds, uh, how can you use a passage like this to talk about infant baptism? It doesn't even mention baptism. And I agree, um, it does not explicitly mention baptism uh, here, but as I said at the beginning of the sermon, I believe it's the precondition for baptism. That all who are accounted holy are the recipients, are to be and have a right to baptism. Those who are accounted members of the visible church have a right to the sacrament of baptism. And so it may not mention baptism explicitly, but it does I believe implicitly speak to our children having a right to baptism. Baptism does not save our children uh, any more than baptism saves an adult. Uh, we do not believe in baptismal regeneration. We do not believe the Bible teaches baptismal regeneration. Only inward baptism saves an individual, which is, again, what outward baptism, water baptism, points to. It signifies and seals inward baptism, the promise of inward baptism to all who believe and trust in the Lord our God. I close uh, today just with uh, speaking to different groups among us just to encourage, to challenge uh, each of us in some way or another and we all will fall into one of these categories I believe First of all, uh, I close by speaking to Christian parents. That since your, your children are called by an apostle of Jesus Christ, therefore by Jesus through the apostle, are called holy and are set apart unto the Lord, you are perhaps the chief means that God will use to bring your children, to lead your children unto that realization of faith and trust in Jesus Christ so that those promises made to them through the covenant of grace and through their baptism might be realized in their life. You are going to spend by far more time than any minister is able to spend uh, with those little ones and those that are growing up, um, the, that are uh, in early adulthood. Uh, you, you, as you look over the time spent, you are going to have by far, I believe, the greatest influence in those children's lives. That's very sobering, isn't it? It's a delight to know, it's a joy to know that our children are included in God's covenant of grace, but it's also very sobering 
as well. They have been placed by God into our care so as to raise on his behalf. That's why the Lord says in Mark chapter 10, forbid them not for of such, as he was holding even a little one in his hand, of, for of such ones is the kingdom of God. These little ones, the kingdom of God is theirs. And so, may that be what we are doing, leading our children to Christ, rather than like the disciples in Mark chapter 10, hindering them from coming to Christ. They were saying the disciples to the parents, you know, don't bother the master. Don't bother him right now. Leave him alone. But Jesus said, bring them unto me. For as such is the kingdom of heaven. I next uh, speak to the, to you who are um, still in your parents' home, uh, and maybe older covenant children um, or younger covenant children, maybe covenant children who have already made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, maybe covenant children who have not yet made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But I speak to you all, nevertheless, that you are, you are outwardly, According to God's word, you are holy. You are outwardly holy, and if God's work of grace has already happened, you are inwardly holy. You are members of Christ's church. You're not second-class citizens. We treasure you. We love you. You are, again, the future uh, for the Church of Jesus Christ for the this expression, covenanted expression of Christ's Church. Just as Paul taught in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, he spoke directly to the children. So in our preaching, Dr. Dilday, myself, we speak expressly, not just to the adults, but we speak we speak by God's grace to you who are children within your families. And so the admonition is to you, you have great blessings that have been bestowed upon you that you didn't earn, that you didn't deserve, that God graciously gave to you and placing you in a covenant household among believing parents. Don't take advantage of that. Don't neglect that blessing. Praise God for that blessing. Don't cast it away as Esau did, selling his birthright for some earthly pleasure. Realize how important and how priceless is 
the covenant and those covenant blessings that are yours and act in faith upon them. Don't just hold them up and look at them. Receive them. Don't just look at them from a distance. Take them, receive Jesus Christ and those blessings by faith alone in Christ alone. Do do more than just look at the food on the table. Partake of the food. Partake of Christ. Eat of him. Taste of him, for he is good. And then, for all of us, each one of us who has been baptized, each of us who is a member of Christ's church, uh, let's not be satisfied and content with where we are presently in our spiritual growth. Let us continue to press on by God's grace, looking to Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the only one who can give us the strength to press on, to improve upon our, our baptism. Though we're not being baptized today, and one of our covenant children is, it is yet a time for covenant renewal for all of us. To think in terms of, I've been baptized. What does that mean? How am I living up to that baptism? What that baptism means? That God has made wondrous promises to me that are signified and sealed in that sacrament of baptism. Am I enjoying them? Am I neglecting them? Am I casting them aside daily? So this is a time for all of us to renew our covenant with the Lord as we consider his promises that he has made to us in our baptism. Baptism is intended, dear ones, to be a help to our faith. A help to our faith and our growth in Jesus Christ not one that we simply say, I've been baptized, it's all taken care of, it's all done, I've been baptized, I don't need to do anything else, I've been baptized. No, it's to be a help to our faith. It's to encourage us as to what Christ has promised us and what we believe and receive in trusting in Christ all of those blessings and how we are walking in those blessings and in the commandments of God. May it be a help uh, to each of our faith. Stand with me at this time in prayer, please. Our Father in heaven, thank thee, Lord Jesus, blessed spirit, for the wonders of that covenant that thou hast made with us and our children and our grandchildren. Our Father, we, we glory and boast in thee. We boast not in our worthiness, but in Christ's worthiness. We boast not in our obedience, but in Christ's obedience. Not in our righteousness, but in his righteousness. 
We boast in the promises of God that are freely offered to us in the gospel, that are signified and sealed in our baptisms. We pray, our Father, that thou would uh, take thy word united in our hearts with true faith, that we would not be mere hearers of the word, but doers of it. That thou would, God, bless us with uh, a posterity and a generation, Lord, that does not, like Israel of old, forsake the covenant, but rather walks in that covenant of grace. Thank thee, our Lord, for thy word today that our children are holy. They're not unclean, but they are holy. Lord, we, uh, we can't express enough to thee because we, as parents, love our children and we desire the best for them and there isn't anything better for them than the fact that they are holy. And we pray, our God, that they will not only be outwardly holy, but God, work thy grace that they would be inwardly holy as well. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'm going to transition at this time to the, uh, our, the baptism. And uh, before I invite Dan and Becca to bring Timothy forward here, for the baptism, let me simply say that uh, as far as the warrant uh, for baptism, uh, Jesus uh, very clearly says, um, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy, Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Uh, so we do, do not do this on our own authority uh, because we think it's a good idea because Jesus has authorized and commanded that we do so. The meaning, just very briefly, I've, I think, uh, said something to this effect, but let me just point out that uh, the meaning as to baptism, it's a sign and it's a seal. It's a sign in that it points to something. It's it's visible. Baptism is visible. Water is applied. Uh, so that's visible. But it points to something that is invisible. Uh, it points to our need in, uh, of a spiritual cleansing, a spiritual washing, and the promise that is made in that baptism of a spiritual washing to all who will trust in Jesus Christ. It's also a seal. Uh, a seal is that which confirms uh, that document which is sealed. Um, if you have a document, a legal document, uh, it could be a signature at the bottom, it could be some type of an official seal that is, that is attached that says, in effect, by way of confirmation, that it's from the person it claims to be from or from the, the government agency that it claims to be from. Uh, so. Uh, baptism confirms that the promises that are made to us in the covenant of grace and to our children are not myths. Uh, they're, they're not um, 
God, Christ is not playing games with us. Uh, he's not deceiving us. They're legitimate. They're real. Those promises are very, very real. And he, he, as it were, in baptism, is signing on the bottom, on the dotted line, and saying, these are real promises made to you and to your children. Receive them by faith. As I said, we do not believe that uh, the uh, application of water in baptism automatically regenerates uh, a child so that the, uh, the grace is tied to the moment uh, of baptism. Uh, we do believe, however, that God uh, has ordained baptism and uses baptism as a means of grace uh, to draw and to bring um, those who are baptized uh, unto Christ at his own appointed time. Baptism doesn't leave someone in a neutral state. Um, it leaves them in a, if we have been baptized, whether young or old, if we have been baptized, it doesn't leave us in some in-between neutral state in relationship to God uh, we are in covenant with God. And what we do with that covenant is very, very sobering. It's a joy. It's a precious blessing that we are in covenant with God. Who could possibly imagine that the God, the creator of the universe, would want me A miserable sinner to be in covenant with him. And yet he does. And so it's a delight, but it is very sobering. We can't just uh, push it off uh, as something that leaves us in a neutral state. No, if we disregard God's covenant, uh, there are very severe consequences to pay. And so we have to, again, look upon baptism as very, very serious as well as something by way of joy and delight. That's the way the sacraments are. Uh, great blessing. But there's also, if we abuse them, if we neglect them, there's also consequences associated with them. And the last thing I want to say is just... Uh, Dan and Becca are going to be, as Christian parents, going to be taking uh, promises uh, before the congregation uh, and before the Lord. And uh, again, the promises indicate this is a covenant ceremony, just like we make promises uh, in a marriage. Um, you know, when you have an important covenant ceremony, it's time to make promises, right? Uh, because we don't take covenant ceremonies lightly. And so likewise, um, in this particular instance, we do uh, administer to Dan and Becca these, these promises to which they take before the Lord and before us as witnesses uh, so that, again, we are all brought into uh, this matter, uh, we all have a share 
in caring for Dan and Becca and in caring for little Timothy as well. This is, this is one that is a part of us. So we, as we pray for Dan and Becca, we pray for Timothy and any other children that God in his mercy and grace grants to them. As we pray for any of the families, we pray for them not simply as, as adults, but we pray for all the children as a part of those families. So let us, at this time, recognize our own covenant renewal and let us stand together with Dan and Becca.